If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to the book of Job, chapter 40. Job, chapter 40. We're coming to the end of the book of Job. Would you believe that two of my deacons commented on how quickly I'm going through this book? I wouldn't either. They didn't. But anyway, we will finish up, Lord willing, the book of Job here in a couple of weeks. And we're moving into the Christmas season. I always like to hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. As we look at the book of Job, one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie called Tombstone. It is about the legendary Old West lawman Wyatt Earp and his brothers and their time in Tombstone, Arizona. And in one scene that occurs after the infamous gunfight at the OK Corral, and then the cowboys retaliate by killing Morgan Earp and wounding Virgil, they are all at the railway station and about to board the train when two men, two of the cowboys who are the sworn enemies of the Earps, approach the train to kill those who are on board. And Wyatt Earp kills one of the men with a shotgun. He knocks the other one down and he stands over him and he says to him, the man is the notorious coward Ike Clanton, and Earp says to him, all right, Clanton, you called down the thunder, well, now you've got it. That might be said of Job. Job, in his agony, in his misery, had in effect called down the thunder. He had demanded an audience with God. Job was innocent in his suffering. We know that. His three friends have come to him and said to him, Job, you've committed some great sin. You need to confess it. If you'll confess it, everything will be right. And Job maintained all along that he had done nothing to bring this suffering upon him. Now, we know that to be true because we have read the first two chapters of the book, and we know what is happening, that God is proving to Satan and to the world that there is a believer who will serve him for no other reason than because God is God, whether there are any blessings that come from that or not. But Job does not know that. But what Job does, he hasn't, he hasn't sinned, that, and that caused his suffering, but what Job does is he sins in his suffering. And he says things of God that are not true. He suggests that God has lost control of the universe and that God somehow is not sovereign and that he is not good. So a young man by the name of Elihu comes along and shows Job his errors and he prepares Job for God to speak to him. Job has been clamoring for an audience with the Almighty all through the book since chapter 3. And now, having called down the thunder, he's got an audience with God. But it isn't going the way that he thought that it would go. So we've come to the climax of the book when God will speak to Job from the midst of a whirlwind. We'll see that next week uh, in, in verse 6. Uh, and at long last, we get an answer to the question that has dominated this entire story so far. Why do the righteous suffer? More specifically, 
Why does Job suffer? The answer Job receives from God is not one that Job expects or even necessarily likes. In fact, some would not consider God's words to Job an answer at all. For in Job chapters 38 through 42, we discover something of what God means in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 8 when he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And in Psalm 145.3 and Isaiah 4.28 where we read that God's greatness is unsearchable, that God's greatness no one can fathom. In our weakness, God condescends to teach Job that God's thoughts, ways, and greatness transcend anything that humans can think or imagine. And as a result, Job will be thoroughly humbled, transformed in his thinking, before God in his grace will restore to Job everything that he had before all of this trial, all of these trials began. As, as you look at the last section of the book of Job, it is important to remember that God's appearance to Job is an act of grace. Instead of coming to Job in judgment, and confronting him with a list of his sins, or even rebuking him for all of his thoughtless questions, God takes him to the school of wisdom, where the primary entrance requirement is a diploma from the school of suffering, which Job has now graduated. And the Lord will teach Job that true wisdom comes in a, in a in a series of rhetorical questions. He will teach Job what true wisdom really is. It is a process that is designed to remind Job and us that the creator and the sustainer of all things has graciously drawn near and speaks to him about the nature of the world and of his lordship, his sovereignty over every inch of all that he has made. God is still on his throne, despite all that has happened to Job, and despite Job's fear that he has been abandoned. That's something that's important to remember. As you look out on a world that has seemingly gone mad in most every respect, remember that God is still on his throne. God has not abdicated his sovereignty. Nothing is happening that is outside of his control. Since the God who created all things, governs all things, and sustains all things, uh, appears to Job in the midst of the storm, then Job is instantly assured that everything is okay, despite the fact that his present circumstances have not changed. Knowing that God is not angry at him it no longer really matters to Job what will happen because the very presence of God assures Job that all is well and puts even his terrible suffering into the proper perspective. God, as I said, has been graciously preparing Job for this moment all along. Job saw immediately that none of his 
three friends possess true wisdom. It, it could be said, and, and I will say, that these three well-intended doofuses, I'm not sure, would the plural of doofus be doofuses or doofi? I, anyway, I should have asked someone. But anyway, they had not helped. They had only darkened Job's way of understanding. And Job's ability to very quickly silence them shows us that he was on the right track, that he had some wisdom and understanding. But his increasing pride and his conceit uh, in his effort to vindicate himself showed that he was not yet quite ready to receive true wisdom. So as I said, Elihu comes on to the scene. And with his words, Job realizes that he has gone too far in what he has said about God. It is Elihu who by humbling Job prepares Job for God to speak to him. And now God will speak from the midst of the whirlwind. Given all that Job had been through, without that kind of preparation, he surely would have been overwhelmed by the Lord's approach. Job is now simultaneously humbled and yet completely assured of God's favor. Now we need to go back and remind ourselves again of what happened in the prologue in chapters 1 and 2. Remember that it was the Lord himself who had summoned Satan. He had called his attention to his righteous servant Job. Uh, so now God comes to Job also in the form of of a challenge, this time through these rhetorical questions. The irony of both of these confrontations is that God confronts both Satan and Job the same way, with his wondrous work. Job is the work by which God confronts Satan. Have you observed my servant Job? He is righteous and upright. He is a blameless Man, So Job himself is the work of divine grace through which God challenges Satan. God's challenge to Job to consider his wondrous works was the means by which God brought Job to redemption uh, or that redemption might be perfected in him. This enables God's righteous servant, Job, to triumph over the devil throughout this trial by ordeal. It is the wondrous works of God that enable us to triumph over the devil. Uh, in the end, Job will bow the knee and praise his creator, praise his name. He will not curse God as Satan had predicted at the beginning of the book. You remember Satan said, oh yeah, yeah, Job... Job honors you and Job worships you because of all you've given him. But if you take away his money, you take away his camels and cattle and sheep and oxen, you take away that, he won't, he won't, he'll curse you to your face. But Job does not do that. Job's ordeal, it is also very important to remember, prefigures the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who will be perfectly righteous and completely obedient, who will finally and totally defeat Satan when he too is afflicted with grief 
at the hands of sinful men and women. Throughout the book of Job, we find a fundamental truth of redemptive history being set forth in type and in shadow. Someone must fulfill all righteousness and then offer a full and complete satisfaction for human sin so that the works of the devil might be undone. Someone has to be able to destroy the last enemy. That enemy is death. Job's obedience does so in a very provisional and limited way. But the suffering Job, who struggles to find wisdom, becomes a type of the greater Job, of Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God in human flesh. So this section begins that we're looking at this morning with a pertinent question. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? There, there is the question. Uh, Job has no choice but to give up. God has asked these questions of Job. Were you there when I created the world? Were you there when I hung the constellations in space? Do you know where the rain comes from? Do you know where the snow comes from? Do you, what about the light, Job? Are you familiar with it? Observe the creatures that I have made. Job's wisdom is no match for the wisdom of God. Job was the greatest man of the East. Job was a man of great wisdom. He was a man of great intellect. But his wisdom was nothing compared to the wisdom of God. How often, how often do we read of someone whose wisdom has surpassed that of God's? And they take an account from the Old Testament or the New and they look and they say, Oh, look, this is obviously a mistake. Should not have been done this way. I would not have done it that way. Well, you are not God. Perhaps you should stop and think about that for a while. Basically, that is what God says to Job. So, after these verses, Job will no longer dispute with God. He will no longer claim that God has not done right by him. He will not demand to approach God as a prince. He had demanded, you know, to put God in the dock so that he could question him. Job Job has lost the contest. Job is aware acutely that God is God and that he is not. He is humbled but also assured. So there comes after the pertinent question a sincere admission At the start, the Lord challenged Job to give an answer, back in chapter 38, verse 3. Now he does, or or does he? (laughs) Job actually makes one admission and one declaration. The The admission is, he is of small account. One translation says, I am vile. That has the sense of being small or light, and hence, metaphorically, unworthy relative to God. Implicitly, Job is bowing before the greatness of God, although he's still focused on himself. He doesn't say anything about God yet. He says, I am of small account. Uh, But it's a start. After the second speech, Job will explicitly make a confession about God. He will say, you're too wonderful for me. I, I cannot fathom it. I've gone to places that I had no business going. And then in verse 5, there is a promise of silence. 
Job says that he will no longer make any further declarations. He puts his hand over his mouth as if to discipline his unruly tongue, to prevent his lips from saying anything else they ought not to say. He admits that he has spoken once, twice. That has the sense of time and time again. Now he will stop. Derek Kinder has written this. God's speech cuts us down to size, treating us not as philosophers, but as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's place and to accept it. Amen to that. Through all of this, we're still left with two loose ends that we'll be looking at in the next, the last two messages of the book. And the first question is, does Job's, or does God's speech answer Job's question? The question is, why do I, Job, who do not deserve it, suffer all that I have suffered? And the answer so far seems to be this. Look around and you will understand that I am the Lord, the creator and the sustainer of life. I am in control of all the world. And therefore you can trust me with your life and with your unanswered questions. Is that an answer? I would say yes and no. We know that Job has already, uh, we already know that Job has been a true worshiper of God. He has never denied that the Lord is God, really God, in control, supreme, sovereign, and all-powerful. And yet somehow this first speech forces Job to look around and admit that the Lord really is God. And that he who made and sustains all the created order can do no wrong. And so now Job bows even deeper and realizes that somehow his questions can be left at the feet of the Almighty God. And yet there's still a problem. And the problem is what Christians always face. We think of the, the words of that Louis Armstrong classic song, What a Wonderful World. And you know what? It is a wonderful world. We do live in a wonderful world. And yet it is a world touched by horrible evil. It is a world where a cultured man may listen to Mozart while being the commandant of an extermination camp at Belson or Ravensbrook, a world where the beauty of sex can be twisted into infidelity and all sorts of abuse, a, wonder, a world where the wonder of man's technological wizardry, wizardry is used in the service of mass destruction. And it's a world where blameless Job suffers. So the puzzle is this. What about all the evil in the world? It's all very well for God to be the creator of a good world. But what about the world we actually live in? What about the world that we are in that is touched by darkness and death? And that's the world we have to live in. It's the world that Job lives in. It is a world that any honest believer lives in, a world of pain and injustice and perplexity and sorrow. What about that world, the real world? 
There are hints of an answer in the first speech. There will be more in the second. The other loose end concerns Job himself. Job has said, I am of small account. Or it, but at, as of now, he has not said anything, at least explicitly, about God. Job has acknowledged his own insignificance, but he has not exalted God's wisdom and God's knowledge. So Job is uh, sobered, but not quite humbled. So we have those two loose ends on our minds as we go into the end of the book. What, what really makes the words of Job chapter 40 verses 1 through 5 all the more amazing is that Job is still suffering and has not yet received the explanation of his trial, his ordeal. God has not given Job the answer to the question, why? Which was what Job was surely expecting. The answer we are given is this. God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Did we hang constellations in space? Do we control all of earth's creatures? To people without faith in Jesus Christ, that is not an answer. To people who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ, the answer, God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts, does nothing for them. But to people who know that Christ died for their sins and was raised for their justification, it is the perfect answer. If the righteous one, if the completely obedient one, if the perfect one died in our place to save us from our sins, then who are we to question the work of God? As though God knows nothing of our pain. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was like us in every way apart from sin. It is a fact of Scripture that there is no way that a true believer can encounter the living God without being undone by the guilt of their sin. At no time did God ever tell Job why he suffered. And yet Job has his answer. For when God appears to Job from the midst of the storm, Job knows that God is with him and God is for him, and that is enough. When people ask you, how can you be a Christian in the face of all the suffering in the world, in the face of man's inhumanity to man, in the face of the terrible, horrible things that happen every day, how can you believe in a good God? Because Jesus Christ died for my sins. And he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And God's thoughts are not my thoughts, and God's ways are not my ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so his thoughts and his ways are above my thoughts and my ways. That is the answer. In just a moment, we're going to 